0: And we welcome you to the Dolphins in Depth podcast, Barry Jackson with Daniel Oyafusi. Good to be with you on Roster Cutdown Day. And, well, 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 we have a roster sitting here upon our taping on Tuesday night that has all of three running backs. It has 12 defensive backs. It's got five tight ends, a partridge, and a pear tree. It's got a little bit of everything. And we're going to go down the entire roster and the cuts and what surprised us and our thoughts. Uh, Over these next 45 minutes, but initial impressions, Daniel, with their moves today, what surprised you? What stood out to you? Well, I think
1: the first thing that I was really looking out for was what, what they would do with the wide receiver position, you know, coming into training camp and in the first week or so of training camp. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, of injuries to that position, some guys who started on PUP. And over the course of, of training camp in the preseason, Tua Tango never really got to to really establish that, that consistent chemistry with the receivers. I know he worked with some of these guys in the offseason and whatnot, but it just seemed like somebody was always in and out of the lineup. And it wasn't until this past week where we have Preston Williams and Albert Wilson and Wolfville and Devontae Parker finally get back uh on the field, and with them coming back, I was curious what they would do with a guy like Matt Collins and a guy like Kirk Merritt, who was really, really impressive throughout training camp, and even Jakeem Grant, who, for as well as uh, he's played and as good a returner as he is, he became, he became a little bit expendable with uh, Jalen Waddle being in the mix. So obviously, uh, 4 p.m. comes, and we find out that Matt Collins makes the team as a impressive wide receiver and also a guy who can be on special teams, they to structured to Grant's concept, uh, contract, but then they end up waiving Kirk Merritt. And I know that uh, among, amongst the Miami faithful, that was uh, a move that people were very sad to see, but there's a chance that he could clear waivers and come back to the
0: practice squad. So uh, the
1: fun's not over. You know, there's still going to be a lot of moves over the next couple of days.
0: Yeah, there have typically been a handful of Dolphins roster moves the day after cutdown day, either players claimed off waivers or placed on IR, of course, the the poster child for Dolphins activity the day after cutdown day was that 2019 debacle of the season, at least debacle of the first seven games of the season, when the Finns changed like 11 players in the first 72 hours after roster cutdowns. There were 14 new faces on the team, and they picked up some interesting players the day after cutdown in past years. I remember Luke Falk was one addition the day after. Cutdown day during the Adam Gase regime, and there have been others, less so last year for the Dolphins. Uh, I did want to go by position with our thoughts on some of the moves made. You mentioned receiver. I was – mildly surprised that they uh, let go of Merritt just because I think there's potential there to be a fourth or fifth receiver. But once they made the decision to restructure Jakeem Grant and keep him, there was basically no way to keep Kirk Merritt because you're not going to keep eight receivers. Seven is stretching it. As you know, Will Fuller doesn't count toward the 53 in week one, but he will beginning in week two. Uh, The Grant story was interesting behind the scenes. The Dolphins spoke to several teams about a potential trade for Grant over the last 48 hours. They found nothing that appealed to them, and so they made the decision of, okay, let's keep him, but let's eliminate the last two years of his contract. Let's give him a bit of a pay cut. He was guaranteed 3.6 had he been on the team in week one. Now, all of that money was not guaranteed had he been cut today. Uh, but they restructured it. Now he can earn up to $3 million this season. And the value of keeping Jakeem is he's a proven commodity. He's one of the better returners in the league, third in average punt return uh, yards per return last year. And so he gives you an option if you decide not to have Jalen Wild be your primary returner at this point. So I, I don't have any issue at all with them keeping Jakeem Grant. There is a risk in cutting Kirk Merritt. Would not be surprised if he's claimed off waivers tomorrow by some team. But if he isn't, He'll come back to the practice squad, and they did tell Malcolm Perry that they want him on the practice squad as well. If he clears waivers, I think he's likely to clear waivers and be on the practice squad. So the Dolphins will have a group of at least nine NFL-quality receivers. I think Perry has the ability to play in the league. We saw him catch a touchdown against Buffalo last year and have some good moments. And in the background, Daniel, are Isaiah Ford and Robert Foster, who, of course, are no longer part of the organization. But they did enough good things in camp to make you think, okay, maybe they bring one of them back if they're decimated or even a little bit depleted at the position come November. So I wouldn't rule out seeing those two guys. Uh, so that's the story at receiver. Tight end, I guess, was pretty predictable. The five guys that we thought would make the team made the team. The only question there is both Shaheen and Seath and Carter have knee injuries, and neither is thought to be major. I think Shaheen is iffy for week one. Carter should be available for week one, although it's not certain. So we'll see on Wednesday if the Dolphins place either on IR, which would sideline them for at least three games. But obviously we all knew they were going to keep Gaseki Smythe, and Shaheen. Uh, I think there was a little bit of a question about that heading into camp. Would they keep both Smythe and Shaheen? But that was essentially settled during training camp because Shaheen caught a handful of touchdown passes in the red zone. He was really good. And Durham, Smythe, is really an under-the-radar asset for this team. George Godsey tells us all the time how valuable he is. So that's not a surprise. I guess the question is, Daniel, do you think there's a role at all for Hunter Long as a rookie, or is it simply impossible to play a fifth tight end? I mean, he might not even be active on game days. No, you're right, and obviously
1: he was the guy who was kind of set back with that injury scare, um, that that injury scare to his knee when he was carted off during the Bears' practice. He's able, he's been able to come back. Um, he got a lot of playing time in the preseason finale. He dropped a a long pass against the Bengals, which would have been really great for him if we could uh, could have reeled that in. But again, um, the likelihood of having five tight ends active on on game day, if two of them or three of them aren't playing special teams is very unlikely. So that's definitely – that tight end room definitely seems like it's something that it won't be uh, consistent from week to week. You know, it might be matchup-based where one guy is active and another guy isn't. And then it could just be kind of riding a
0: hot hand as the season progresses. Right. I'm with you on that. And I guess the interesting long-term question of tight end is do they extend Gusecki Who's an impending unrestricted free agent? Do they extend Smythe? I don't have any update on that other than as of mid-July, the Dolphins had not broached a contract extension with Gusecki. We'll see if that changes. I guess if the Dolphins feel that Long will give them what Gusecki gives them, which is a bit of a reach to say that at this point. Obviously, Gusecki now one of the top six past receiving tight ends in the league, if they feel that he would give them that, then maybe they don't offer multi-years to Gesecki. And remember, you could also go year-to-year with Gaseki initially and put the franchise tag on him next year, which would not be cost-prohibitive in the $10 million range. So that would be another way that they could approach it. Uh, running back. Now, I think we we're both surprised that they kept only three, But I could justify it, Daniel, this way. If you are not convinced that the fourth guy is an essential component in your team, and if you were not convinced that Jared Dokes can be a starting NFL caliber running back or even a really good number two, then I don't blame them for going with three because running backs, I know the old saying is it's a dime a dozen, right? And so if you feel like Jared Dokes is not a special runner and is not going to be a frontline NFL back, then why invest a roster spot in him initially? Because you could easily get a running back at any time if you have an injury, right? I mean, if Salvin Ahmed or Gaskin or Malcolm Brown is injured, you can find someone on the street to fill in and uh, and carry the ball for you in a pinch as a number two or number three. Uh, I know they valued their special teams, but ultimately it wasn't enough to save him. And Jordan Scarlett really didn't get the chance in camp that – Dokes did. I'm not convinced that Dokes is any better than Scarlet, but uh, Jordan did not get a lot of carries. So that's running back. What about quarterback to you? Could a case have been made for Reed Senate, or do you think really there's just no room to keep three in today's NFL? I think there just
1: wasn't any space for Reed and you know, he had a great performance against against the Bengals, one that um really made me, really is gonna make me interested to see what happens on the waiver wire. But again, um, you know, with fifty three players it might seem like a lot, but once you get to those final roster spots you need guys who are gonna be able to contribute, uh, maybe in some capacity on, on game day. It's not like last year where the club situation was a little more out of control and you have to some teams kept three just to, three quarterbacks just to be safe. Um, but he's definitely a guy that uh, the team likes and they'd love to get him on the practice squad. Now the question is, did he kind of play himself off the practice squad with uh, his performance in the preseason?
0: Right. It'll be interesting to see, and we'll know by midday Wednesday whether a team put in a waiver claim for him. I guess the question with Senate is arm strength, but clearly he's a smart guy. He's pretty accurate. There's been development there over the last year, which is a credit to working last year with the Dolphins coaches, who of course, who have changed, right? They have new quarterback coach due up as the coordinators, but it's a credit to George Gotze, who's been with them both years. Uh, So there is potential there, certainly in a pinch-hitter-type role as a number two, uh, if you lose, God forbid, if you lose Tua or Jacoby Brissett. But good job by the Dolphins developing a young guy that virtually no one had heard of except Draftniks, a guy who spent a year at the University of San Diego was a walk-on, had to work a part-time job while he was playing for the Toreros of San Diego. So uh, we'll see if he clears waivers and if he's back on the practice squad. And file this under the meaningless Dolphin preseason nugget uh, bin. Uh, Reed sent it most passing yards in a preseason game of any NFL quarterback since 2017. Record held at that point by Jacoby Brissett, now the Dolphins' number two. Uh, So that's an entirely useless stat uh, to share with you. Uh, Let's go to offensive line. And there was a surprise there, the fact that Robert Jones, who was guaranteed over $100,000 by the Dolphins after the draft, did claim a spot on the initial 53. Was not a shock because we always knew that he had a chance. I considered it a mild surprise. I think heading into the last two and a half weeks of Camp Daniel, I would have made panky a slight favorite with the thinking that they could pass Robert Jones to the practice squad and develop him. But then Panky got hurt. He was ineffective in his first preseason game. And I think that really changed the tide. And the other thing was uh, they decided they had no use for either of the two backup centers who they had for much of camp with uh, obviously Matt Scora and with Cameron Tom. And they acquired a lineman from Baltimore to be their backup center. So it looks now, like six through eight of your offensive line will be in whatever order Greg Mance, who's a guy acquired from Baltimore, Liam Eichenberg, Greg Little as your backup swing tackle, and remember Robert Hunt can play backup tackle too, and then Robert Jones is your ninth. Uh, what surprised you about how the offensive line moves shook out and were you at all surprised that Skurra never challenged Dieter? Because you've seen that Skurra a heck of a lot more than all of us having covered the Ravens.
1: Yes, well, to answer the skirt question, I was surprised that he didn't really push for that job. Um, He was a, a former starter with the Ravens, started 51 games over four seasons. He did have a severe knee injury toward the end of the 2019 season, but he was able to come back in time and start for the the 2020 season and we all know that he had those snap issues but it didn't really surface that much in training camp from what I from what I saw the few weeks that I saw so that was a surprise overall along the offensive line i think the biggest story is that two of the top reserves heading into the season are guys who were not in the building two weeks ago. As of of now, two weeks ago, they were not here, and that being Greg Little and Greg Mance. I think that kind of speaks more to the overall state of the offensive line and the depth there. And I keep on saying I think that the offensive line is going to make or break this offense and potentially this team in this season. Um, Again, you're counting on a lot of first-year and second-year players. Um, Liam Eichenberg seems like he's going to be the top – reserve off the bench should there be a need for a switch up because of injury or play or bad play but again you have a Greg Mance who you know to his to his credit he started a couple a couple of seasons in in Houston and Greg Little a younger guy who's really trying to get his career back on track so that's going to be something to really monitor as the season progresses
0: And we'll see if there are any changes to this offensive cast by week one in New England. I guess it wouldn't be shocking if they see a veteran offensive lineman they really like on waivers. They could conceivably try to do something there and try to pass Robert Jones onto the practice squad if he clears waivers. And then also, of course, we cannot rule out the possibility of a running back being added on waivers to give them a fourth. Uh, But I'm not sure anyone who's on the waiver wire now would crack their top three because they're obviously intrigued with Salvan Ahmed, who did good things last year, averaged 4.3 per carry. We've seen how he's been used in training camp. Uh, Really, really interesting weapon on the boundary when matched up against a linebacker. I know you and I saw at least three plays where he gained significant yards on sideline patterns in the passing game. So they're going to be able to utilize that this year. We know they like Malcolm Brown's a short yardage back, and we know that Gaskin is the starter. So if they're going to claim some running back on waivers, I would think it would be someone that they think could legitimately challenge those top three. Uh, At first glance, looking at the waiver picks, I'm not sure there's anyone that jumps out from that group. on Johnson is a guy who's available. The Dolphins put in a waiver claim for the former Lions second rounder uh, before he was granted to Philadelphia, but he was waived injured by the Eagles. So if there's a name like that that comes up, maybe we see a running back addition uh, to this room. Defensive line. Uh, This was interesting to me in the sense that they elected to keep – the vested veteran in John Jenkins over any of the kids. And the kids, of course, included Jason Strobridge, the fifth rounder from Palm Beach, fifth round pick in 2020. Uh, Jonathan Ledbetter, the Georgia undrafted player who started the opener in 2019 and has been injured pretty much all of the time since, up until this training camp. And Benito Jones, who had some good moments last year. So they kept the veteran Jenkins which wasn't a surprise, but I saw that as a move that could go either way. I thought maybe they could cut Jenkins, bring him back later. But the value of John Jenkins is you know what you have. He's big. He can back up Raquan Davis at the nose. He can play other spots in the defensive line. He has value. He is a reliable, known commodity. Uh, so that was really my only takeaway from the defensive line. How good do you think this group of linemen is? Do you think – Daniel, the Christian Wilkins has to take another step. I wonder how significantly better he is than Zach Sealer, right? And, and this is something we shouldn't be talking about. Christian Wilkins should be a clearly better player as a first round pick than Zach Sealer, an undrafted uh, guy who came here and has been a big surprise. Uh, so, what on this line are you curious to see?
1: Well, I think that, well, we know that this is a defensive line that's built on its versatility, guys who can play in, who can play a little bit of nose, play inside, outside. I'm really interested, interested to see how much pass rush that interior unit can get. Like you said, Christian Wilkins, guys like uh, Zach Sealer. Uh, it was interesting we spoke to Zach Sealer after Tuesday's practice and he said you know it's a it's a great feeling knowing that everyone can do can do different things and that can keep it offense on its toes because you don't know exactly what you're getting depending on the package that is in there Um, obviously this defense wasn't as great defending the run so that's something that's really going to come first uh, whether they can um, keep their keep their place up front and Defend the run well, and then obviously that's going to lead to advantageous
0: situations on third down. Right. I'm with you, and it's a veteran line. It should be a line that's effective. Uh, my question is how stout will they be against the run? And to be better against the run than they were a year ago when they allowed 4.5 per carry, you're going to have to see a jump from Raekwon Davis. You're going to have to see a better Christian Wilkins. And uh, Adam Butler's forte is rushing the passer. He's not known as an above-average run defender. He's decent, but, you know, his strength is rushing the passer. So I'm not entirely convinced that defensive front seven overall, even beyond defensive line, will be that much better against the run. And it really needs to be for this to be a playoff team. Now, speaking of the defensive front seven and stopping the run, when you and I were talking about reasons why they might be better stopping the run this year, the conversation often started with Bernardrick McKinney. And the decision to release him was initially a bit of a head-scratcher, but then if you look more closely at it, you realize that Alandon Roberts and McKinney are very similar players, and both certainly are assets against the run, both somewhat liabilities in pass coverage, guys who who wouldn't necessarily play in passing downs. You'd probably see Sam Aguavon, Duke Riley in those games. The question that I have for you is this. Is Roberts a better NFL starting linebacker than McKinney? Because the evidence doesn't necessarily suggest so. If you consider the fact McKinney was a pro bowler in 2018, has a larger and better body of work, uh, than Roberts, even though Roberts obviously you know has been in the league for a while. So was that a move that puzzled you? Do you think it was the right move?
1: I think that of all the cuts that we saw the last 48 hours, that was probably the biggest surprise, that along with Skura, um, just because when you do bring in someone of that pedigree, you expect him to be on the team at the start. Quite frankly, I mean, I think most of us kind of penciled him in as the starter next to next to Jerome Baker. But again, as you said, and as Flores noted uh, early Tuesday, um, they do uh, McKinney and Roberts do play similar similar roles. They have similar styles. I think that the acquisition of uh, McKinney in the Shaq Watson trade was a was a good was a good move to get some depth because Roberts was coming off the severe knee injury. And at the time, there was some concerns and questions over whether he'd be able to return in time for the season. But he has. He's looked good. He got some playing time in the preseason finale. It looks like they're going to go with him next to Jerome Baker. One thing I'll say is, um, as we see in the NFL defenses are more and more playing out of sub packages, not those those base 4-3 or base 3-4 packages. So anyone that we see next to Jerome Baker, you know, that's not going to be a 50-snap a guy. Um, I think it's going to be a, a joint effort between a Roberts, Aguavon, maybe some Riley.
0: Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think we're going to see a role for Duke Riley Uh, against running backs, against tight ends uh, in the passing game. And even though he struggled a little bit in that role against Cincinnati, he's got an NFL body of work, which suggests that he should be competent in that role. And also seeing how Aguavon played in that second preseason game, this person deserves not only a roster spot, but frankly a package of snaps. I think he's earned that from preseason. He's been here three years he clearly has found a niche as a pass rushing linebacker. So I'll be curious to see if Josh Boyer can, you know, craft maybe a 20 uh, snap or even a 15 snap per game package for Sam. He's certainly worthy of it. Now, speaking of pass rushing, before we go to break, I want to get your opinion on this because this really intrigued me on Sunday. Jalen Phillips, perhaps the best pure pass rusher in the draft. Uh, on a couple of clear passing situations on Sunday, dropped into coverage, didn't particularly contribute anything on those plays. He wasn't necessarily at fault, but he was sort of caught in no man's land where he wasn't a factor in the play. We did see him obviously rush the passer a couple times. He knocked down uh, or put applied pressure on Brandon Allen on one of those plays that many Dolphins fans saw on Sunday. But the question is, should Jalen Phillips be rushing the passer every down? Should he be a hand-in-the-ground defensive lineman? I asked Loris that this week. He made the point that, of course, the Dolphins are not a pure 4-3 team. They play a lot of 3-4. So, obviously, if they're not 4-3, you don't have the opportunity to play Phillips and Ogba both as a defensive end. I guess your other alternative was having Agba stand up, right? Uh But... To you, do you see the benefit of having Phillips play some in coverage, be a Van Ginkle-type edge piece who can both drop into coverage and rush a passer, or would you like him to see him purely as a pass rusher, Daniel?
1: No, I do see the value in him dropping back in coverage because it, speaks to everything that this defense is about that's led by Flores and and Josh Porter. It's about versatility being multiple. We hear that so, so many times, and it's not just coaches speak. That's really the way that they want to build this unit. So if you have a player that comes onto the field on defense and the offense knows, well, if he's in the game, he's going to rush, that's to the detriment of the defense. That can hurt the defense because the offense can scheme and game plan around that. So if you have a player who can come out and he might – he might drop it to coverage. He might rush, or even in the, in the secondary, um, you don't want to have a safety who's just going to play deep. You want somebody who can play around the box, who can cover guys. So I think that it's perfect, and it's a great use of, of Jalen Phillips' skills.
0: And now, you know, it's, it's a good point you raise, and even though I'd like to see him rush the passer a little more, the fact that he dropped it to coverage a lot in his snaps on Sunday doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be used in coverage that much in the regular season, uh, Flores and Josh Boyer are obviously smart defensive technicians and tacticians, and if they feel like he's it has, he, if they feel like Jalen Phillips is at his best rushing the passer 80 percent of the time, they're obviously going to use him that way. But to your point, one advantage of developing his skills in coverage is now with Van Ginkle and Phillips defenses or I should say offenses, won't necessarily know who's going to rush, who's going to drop into coverage. So that certainly gives them an advantage. But I think ideally you'd like to see a lot of snaps this year where Ogba, Adam Butler, Phillips, Van Ginkel are all rushing the passer because that gives you the best chance to generate a consistent pass rush. And we both know this team blitzes a lot. So the question is, can they get to the quarterback rushing four instead of five or six, Uh, I shouldn't leave out Jerome Baker from that list of pass rushers. He was one of the NFL's uh, best inside linebackers in uh, pass rush last year with seven sacks. So it's a pass rush that should be pretty good at the very least if Phillips is what we think he is. Uh, I guess the question is, is there enough edge talent on the roster overall? Uh, You hope that the Brennan Scarlett we saw early in camp is representative of what he could do as opposed to the guy who had only five-and-a-half sacks in five years with Houston. Uh, Really smart guy, good player, easy to root for. Let's hope that if he's needed, he can give you a pass rush. Okay, we're going to go to break, but on the other side, we're going to talk about not only cornerbacks and safeties to round out our Dolphins roster discussion, but we're going to touch on the elephant in the room, Deshaun Watson, and give our views on where this stands, where it should stand, and where it may or may not go from here. We're back after this. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix Live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, Live only
1: on Netflix. You ready? Showtime on May third. Summer starts with the Fall Guy.
0: We do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes.
1: Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film
0: of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall Guy.
1: That's what the poster said.
0: See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy.
1: Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into
0: right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters, May 3rd. Read it PG 13. And we welcome you back to the Dolphins in Depth podcast. Barry Jackson with Daniel Oyafusi. We're breaking down the Dolphins' roster following cuts, and we have one final position group to discuss, and that's the defensive backs. And I think one of the bigger surprises, if you're talking about headliners from the Dolphins' roster cuts as we tape on Tuesday evening, the fact that they have 12 defensive backs on the roster, I think is pretty stunning. Uh, I don't know that either of us or anyone could have envisioned both Jamal Perry and Clayton Fedredom being on the roster As of 4 p.m. today, maybe we could have seen one conceivably, but at the moment, as of this taping, the Dolphins have six safeties, six corners, and you just have a feeling it's not necessarily going to stay that way. Now, the encouraging thing at safety was Javon Holland was back today uh, going through a walkthrough, so he looks to be getting closer to health to be able to resume his competition with Jason McCourty. Brandon Jones has been back a week after dealing with an ankle injury. So you have six safeties and then you have six corners with the sixth of those being Trill Williams, a Syracuse undrafted rookie, beat out a more experienced player in Cravon LeBlanc for that sixth cornerback job. So 12 corners and safeties, Daniel. Is that a manageable number, do you think?
1: No. If, if We all know that there's going to be some... Roster moves here and there in the coming days, weeks. And if there's any position where you expect that number to decline from the initial roster, it's, it's DB. Obviously, some of these end-of-the-roster guys like Fledgillum and, and Williams and Perry, those are guys who are probably going to have to play special teams if they are active on game day. But 12 is
0: pretty high for a 53-man roster. Now, Trill Williams, he intrigues me. I know NFL.com thought this was a guy, if he hadn't been injured at Syracuse and ended a season prematurely last year, they thought he was a guy who could be a fourth or fifth round draft pick. He's been around the ball a lot. He's made plays on the ball in camp. So I like the idea of having a young undrafted corner to develop. And True Williams just has to look across the room and see what the Dolphins have made of Nick Needham. And Needham obviously deserves the lion's share of the credit for that. But this regime, to their credit, one of the many things they've done that has been positive and productive is developing undrafted corners. And uh, if Trill Williams can be anything like what Nick Needham has evolved into, then kudos to the Dolphins for finding another young undrafted cornerback. LeBlanc, I thought, had a chance to stick just because I was thinking maybe if they don't have great trust in Noah – And if there were injuries to multiple corners in the secondary, maybe LeBlanc's experience would have given him a bit of an advantage. But instead, they opted for the upside of Trill Williams. And I'd keep your eye on Javaris Davis, who was injured these last couple of weeks. He was released today, but the Dolphins would like to keep him on the practice squad. A second-year corner from Auburn. He was really, uh, really promising early in camp. Charles Burks, the cornerback's coach, said he was the young corner that was most impressing him the first two and a half weeks of camp. So this is a young man who I would also keep an eye on. And with Noah, the question is, will you eventually get a player befitting of the 30th overall pick in the draft? Now, credit Noah for making a great play on the ball at the end of the Bengals game, which put a positive close to what had been a very uneven camp form. Uh, to his credit, he was better these last couple of weeks. So he struggled early. I thought he was at least competent these last couple of weeks, but... If the Dolphins, God forbid, lose Byron Jones or Xavier Howard for a game or multiple games, my guess, Daniel, tell me what you think of this. My guess is they put Needham on the boundary, Justin Coleman in the slot.
1: I agree with you. We did see Nick Needham move out to the boundary corner position a lot when Byron Jones and uh, and Xavier Howard weren't necessarily in the lineup toward the end of training camp. I think that that's really where their trust and is, and it's kind of a weird spot for – for Noah because uh he's a guy who who is relatively still new to the position having having converted uh to cornerback um the team already has two established cornerbacks in in Howard M Jones so he's not going to be playing on the outside he did play a little bit in the slot during mini camp he said but honestly I don't think that's a natural fit for him um so I'm I'm interested to see if he's even going to be active on game day because he doesn't seem like he's one of the top three or four cornerbacks. you probably put Coleman above him and if he's going to be a a fourth or fifth cornerback he's going to have to play special teams so it's a a really uh, weird spot for him. Hopefully he can kind of make some progress in, in practice maybe get some game action and start to build that confidence again.
0: Yeah, that point is great about whether Noah will even be active on game days. I guess say this. He's a good kid. He's developing. And at least he's not Jeff Gladney, right? Because Gladney was the other corner picked in the 30s of last year's draft, obviously had a criminal charge against him and was released by the Vikings. So at least Noah is a a high-character young man, and and hopefully it's going to work out for him. Okay, let's get to the elephant in the room the story that dominated the last few days, Deshaun Watson. I know South Florida is sick of it, and believe me, if you guys are sick of hearing about it, I'm sick of writing about it because <laughs> Charles Robinson, the Yahoo writer, ruined a perfectly good Saturday by writing on uh, on Saturday over the weekend that the Dolphins had emerged as a frontrunner. And the problem with that story was I think it left readers – And anyone who saw his tweet with the impression that a Dolphins trade was imminent. So we obviously wrote a story on Saturday, as did several others. Our story said the Dolphins certainly, you know, were intrigued with Watson still, but they had balked at the high asking price, so nothing was imminent. And in fact, nothing happened by Tuesday's 4 p.m. deadline to cut to 53. Houston kept Watson on the roster. A Houston radio station has reported that he will be on the inactive list all year and the Texans will pay him $10.5 million for doing nothing. I think what, sto- what kind of kept this story alive beyond the Yahoo reporting and Charles Robinson trying to justify his reporting was the fact that Flores did not shoot it down because he could have easily said Sunday night, Tua is our quarterback, we have no interest in a trade with Houston. At this time, he could have couched it any way he wanted. But the fact that he didn't, I think, is what led to this situation where the story just sort of mushroomed. Uh, but to bring people up to speed who might not have seen this today, uh, and we're again, we're taping on Tuesday evening. So today, Mike Pliflorio, Pro Football Talk, reported that Stephen Ross really wants Deshaun Watson. And that, that was the thing that finally put the Dolphins over the edge where they felt compelled to comment. So they said – uh, that that report was not accurate, that Ross is not telling his football people what to do, and that he supports and likes Tua. I do believe the Dolphins' statement, Daniel. I do not think Ross orders Greer and Flores to do certain football decisions. I think he gives them input. You know, he's he's told us that. He's mentioned Michigan players to them to look at. You know, he's mentioned other players that intrigue him, but he never tells them what to do. So I believe that. And I also believe that he thinks highly of Tua. However, I still am of the belief from speaking to numerous people that Deshaun Watson would be of interest to Miami under certain circumstances. And those circumstances would be if they can get him at a bargain basement price, if Tua should struggle this season, obviously there's going to be interest in Watson. Uh, but at this point, it's not going to happen in the immediate future. Tua will start the year as the quarterback, and I think that's the right move. Uh, So excuse me, Daniel, for my long-winded soliloquy, uh, just to set up what's happened with Watson over these last few days, but what's your read of the situation? How do you think the Dolphins have handled it? And what would you do if you were in their shoes as far as pursuing a trade? Oof. Well, I know it's a lot. I just gave you a lot. And in fact, if you want to take them one at a time, feel free. Well,
1: I've (laughs) been thinking about this Watson situation a lot since the initial Yahoo report came out. And I was like, this just feels familiar. And I'm probably going to be speaking to a very niche crowd when I make this uh, this analogy. But this reminds me of like like an episode of Degrassi. And, like, a married man or a man in a relationship is, like, flirting with another girl and hanging out with another girl and just making jokes. And the the girl in the relationship is kind of left saying, like, what is going on? Like, I feel like that's what's going on. I do think that the Dolphins have showed a lot of interest in Deshaun Watson and have, had conversations about the framework of a trade while also – trying to nurture Tula's uh development and bring the best out of him so you know they're kind of playing both sides so
0: to speak now no question. yeah now, I, I agree with that completely now would you would you pursue it if you were the dolphins see that's
1: that's a, that's a whole another can of worms um, we can't have any discussion on a trade without just kind of acknowledging the fact that there are um, 10 criminal complaints against him. There are um, 22 massage therapists that are uh, have accused him of sexual misconduct. There's you know, an FBI investigation. There is the Houston Police Department looking into this. I feel like you really just have to wait and let the legal situation play out if you don't really know uh, how everything is about to unfold. But kind of going back to uh, the pro football talk report today that, uh, that Steven Ross wants him, um, that could very well be true. You know, the, the Dolphins didn't, uh, they said that the report was inaccurate and then they said that he's not, uh, you know, forcing team decisions But, you know, all that could be true, and Stephen Ross could still love the idea of Deshaun Watson being in Miami. And I think that given this situation, the owner, Stephen Ross, would have to be front and center in signing this off. Because if you make this move, this isn't just a franchise-altering move because you're trading for a Pro Bowl quarterback. It's a franchise-altering move because you're essentially saying Despite all these allegations, we are supporting Deshaun Watson as a member of the Miami Dolphins. So Steve Ross, general manager Chris Greer, head coach Brian Flores, they all have to be on the same page uh, with whatever they're going to do in regards to Deshaun Watson. Um, so the Dolphins can refute reports. They can say he's not forcing team decisions. But you can't tell me that Stephen Ross is not involved in
0: some way, shape, or form when it comes to the Dolphins' interest in Deshaun Watson. Absolutely. I have no question he's given his opinion. I know from someone who's spoken to him that he's spoken of the scenario as something that intrigues him. However, I do believe that he does not order – Chris Greer and Brian Flores to do anything, that he ultimately defers to them on football decisions. I don't think he's a meddler from everything I've been told about his stewardship of the Dolphins. And I do think that he has an affection for Tua. I think he's optimistic about Tua, but he also knows how intoxicating it is to possibly get a top five quarterback who's in his prime, only 25 years old, if the compensation is not enormous and if the legal hurdles can be navigated. And that is a huge question because we don't know if they're going to be criminal charges. We don't know how long any NFL suspension would be. So this leads me to this point, Daniel, if I'm going to inject my own opinion, which I have not in any articles or columns, but I certainly will on this podcast. I do not think pursuing Watson at this point is a good idea. I think we've seen enough from Tua to leave us wanting to see more in this preseason. I think, What Tua has done in training camp, what we saw, albeit against backups, in the Falcons game, what we saw in Arizona last year, what we saw in the second half of the Patriots game last year, the Chargers game last year, I think we've seen enough to give us the belief that if he is at his best, you can win and be a playoff team with Tua, and he can be a top 10 to 15 NFL quarterback. I believe that if he fulfills his potential, he can be that. And if you're going to have a guy who can be top 10 to 15 in the league, I'm not sure why you would trade a bundle of assets for a player who has this enormous, enormous legal cloud hanging over him. Uh, to me, it's just unwise because we do not know the full story, not only with Watson's legal situation, but we don't know the full story of what Tua is going to be. I want to see Tua for an extended period. I'm not going to feel differently if he struggles in New England and Buffalo. I think we need to give this a significant sample size of games, whether it's eight games, whether it's a full 16 games. We need to see this player over an extended period to know exactly what he can be. And then if he struggles or if he's mediocre and there's some clarity on the Watson legal case, then yes, it would be obvious at that point to try to acquire Deshaun Watson. I think the one interesting thing that's been reported in the last few days that nobody else has reported, but I think this is significant for the Dolphins, if true. Aaron Wilson, who's a very good NFL writer based in Houston, reported this past weekend that Deshaun Watson would refuse a trade to Philadelphia. And to me, Daniel, that's significant because... I think Philadelphia had always been viewed as the team that could trump Miami in terms of what it could offer in compensation, because they have the Dolphins' first-round pick in 2022, they have their own first-round pick, and they will have the Colts' second-rounder or first-rounder. It will be a first-round pick if Carson Wentz plays 75% of the snaps. Uh, So they could potentially have three first-round picks, which would trump Miami's One first round pick next year, two first round picks in 2023, and that would seemingly give Philadelphia an edge in pursuing Watson, say, next February or March or April. But if it's true that he refuses a trade to Philadelphia, and obviously that could change, right, uh, then to me that would put Miami in a good position if – Tua struggles. And of course, we all hope Tua succeeds. We all hope he's a rousing success. But if he does struggle, to me, that would put Miami in a good position, knowing that Watson can reject any trade. And then one final postscript, and then you, you get the last word on Watson and Tua. One final postscript on this whole story. My former colleague, Jeff Darlington, who I covered the Dolphins with in uh, the early part of uh, the past decade, Uh, You all know him as an ESPN personality now. He reported late this afternoon that Flores today told his team that Tua is our guy. So at least for now, that gives a bit of a sense of clarity and finality to it, although frankly it had been pretty clear in the last 24 to 48 hours that no trade was imminent. And the sides, as we reported over the weekend, simply could not agree to terms because Miami's not going to overpay for a player who has potential criminal charges hanging over his head. So I think this has come to a good resolution. You need to see Tua. You need to give the young man a chance. He's got great upside. We've seen flashes of it throughout August. We saw flashes of it last year. Let's see what he can do before giving up a truckload of draft picks. You have the final word on Tua or anything else you want, Daniel.
1: Well, first I'm going to hit the potential Watson framer for a trade, and then I'll end on Tua. The Houston Texans are reportedly trying to get three first-round picks, two second-rounders, and maybe another young player in any trade for Deshaun Watson. Uh, Under no circumstances should the Dolphins do that. I understand that the Dolphins have draft capital. They have an impressive roster that has much improved over the past couple years. But no, I understand that you would sacrifice a lot for a potential franchise quarterback, but... I don't think that the Dolphins, short and long term, would be in a great position if they did that. The roster isn't so good that you can give up that that many assets and still be competitive. In my eyes, if the Dolphins were to do something like that and give up that much, they'd essentially be the Texans of two years ago, a team with a great quarterback, a bad offensive line, and a pretty good roster throughout. Is that a good team? Yes. Is it a Super Bowl team? Probably not. And I'll end with Tua. Now, nobody feels bad for Tua. I, as you know, an outsider who is now an insider after being on this beat for three weeks. Um, I still don't really feel either way about Tua. I'm really waiting to see him when the games matter and watch him up close. But I do feel like he's kind of getting a raw, a raw end of the deal. Um, obviously, Deshaun Watson is one of the best quarterbacks in the league. But the discourse over Tua in recent weeks has been as if he's like a bum who cannot play at all, and it's almost like we quickly forget this is a uh, former number five overall, overall pick, who's one of the best quarterbacks in in college football, and the team still go, still did go six and three with him as a starter. So again, I know that uh, there's always a rush to judgment. We want these guys to be amazing quarterbacks immediately, but it takes time. Uh, quarterbacks take time to develop, and we just have to ride it out with Tua.
0: Okay, I'm with you on all that. We thank you for listening, everyone, to our Dolphins in Death podcast. Have a good week. We'll talk to you next week.